You are now listening to Asking for a Friend with Talk Doc, sharing insights through real, honest, and practical ways to improve your communication and relationships. Featuring your hosts, Dr. Pamela Kreiser, Meredith Edwards, and Taylor Polendo. Have you ever been certain about something only to find out that you're dead wrong? I just hate it when that happens. I can think of this one time where I really thought I had a handle on what was going on. It's another one of my tennis stories. Here's what happened. I was playing doubles with my tennis partner in a regional tennis match. And it was a beautiful day and I was kind of just checked out a little bit and just kind of playing. And my partner comes up to me after we lose the first set and she says, hey, I just want to let you know that I think these were the women that were talking about you in the bathroom. And I was like, what? Are you kidding me? What are you talking about? And she said, yeah, they were saying like, you're not that good at tennis. And I found myself fuming. I couldn't believe it. We had lost the set to these mean girls. Well, I was certainly checked in now and the game was on. So we go into the second set and I'm firing on all cylinders. I start playing out of my mind. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to give them a single point. I was so mad. Why would somebody say something like that? You don't even know me. Well, we ended up winning the second and third set. And as protocol would have, we went and shook hands and I tried to be nice, but I was still boiling inside. And my partner comes over to me and she says, hey, great playing. That was so much fun. I'm so glad we won. Way to get it together. And then she turned to me and said, oh, yeah. And one more thing. I was kidding about the bathroom. My jaw dropped. What? She said, yeah, I made that up. I was just trying to get you involved. I couldn't believe it. I was so quick to make up stories in my head. I was so quick to think about what they had done or not done. I attributed motives to what they did. It was a wild series of imaginations that I created just out of a couple of words for my tennis partner. And you know what's worse? I believed it. I told it to myself and I believed it. The simple fact is we all make stories up in our head. Well, that's what Brene Brown calls it. In her book, Rising Strong, she argues that we make up stories when data are missing. She says that this is all based on brain science illustrating our human tendency to make up stories in our head. And most scholars agree with this human tendency. In fact, Sillers did research on marital conflict, and he said he was struck by how confident people seemed to be even when they didn't have the basis for the inferences that they were making about the other party. He researched thought reports and interaction and found that only 5 to 7% of the time participants were thinking about the other partner's perspective. As Hawker and Wilmot aptly put it, no wonder we get into such difficulties in conflict. We misunderstand each other, react to what we think he or she is intending, feel confident about our assessments, and then justify our damaging moves, unquote. So why do we create these stories in our heads? Well, the research of Brene Brown draws upon this neurology research that was conducted by Dr. Burton. Burton is a neurologist and has a book that he wrote called On Being Certain, Believing You're Right Even When You're Not. Burton identifies this concept he calls the feeling of knowing, which is when people feel a strong sense of something, even when the evidence contradicts it. Burton explains that we feel sort of this aha moment when we make sense of something for the first time. And this sensation causes a sense of certainty. So we have aha and a sense of certainty, and this in turn releases dopamine. So very simply, we get a chemical reward every time we think we've figured something out. Our brains are wired to do this. They're wired to complete the sequence of understanding and creating meaning. They're wired for the reward. But here's the catch. 
We only have to complete the sequence to get the reward. It doesn't matter if it's accurate or not. Just completing the sequence gets you the prize. As Brown says, quote, we don't have to be accurate, we just have to be certain, unquote. Now, frankly, this explains a lot. It explains why we make up stories. We make them up because we're wired to do it to get that dopamine, even if it's inaccurate. In my opinion, this research really relates to Vygotskyan theory. Now, psychologist Vygotsky says there's a dynamic relationship between our thinking and speech. Our thinking reflects our speech and vice versa. He says that we have a tendency as humans to abbreviate our speech and not fully elaborate our thoughts. So abbreviated speech, or truncated speech as I like to call it, is speech that is shortened or cut short. It abbreviates something, it trims out the details, and is a shortened format. Now, I like to use the word truncate to imply something's missing. These messages don't have the detail. Now, this creates a fragile and reinforcing downward cycle. But there's another problem. Vygotsky says we go into the interaction believing we know more information than we actually have. He calls this the overestimation of intersubjective knowledge. This is the idea that instead of approaching the interaction thinking we need more information, we actually think we need less. So what happens is we get into interaction and we deliver abbreviated messages to each other. And this results in the communicator's choice to believe they know even more than they actually need to know. So you and I think that we know more when we don't. And then you and I feel we don't need to even ask about it. And because we don't ask about it, we think we understand a situation when we don't, and we have no idea that we don't even know. So you can see how truncated communication would accelerate the stories that you and I make up in our heads because more parts are missing. If we think about our overall tendency to abbreviate speech and combine it with our tendency to make up stories in our head, we are headed for trouble. Think about my tennis story. My partner said something brief and abbreviated. They were talking about you and you weren't good at tennis. Think about how abbreviated this is. But after hearing the abbreviated speech, I made up the rest of the details and I got a boost of dopamine in the process. Next, I made up all sorts of additional untrue stories in my mind. I attributed motives to them, attributions, criticisms of their court conduct, and I got more and more shots of dopamine. But none of this was true, and it doesn't have to be to get the dopamine. We can obviously see how these stories we create can create problems for ourselves. So what's the lesson? Well, first, we need to understand our human tendency to do this. No one's exempt. We all do it. Second, we need to ask for elaboration rather than assume. Brown suggests that we solicit more information directly. She recommends we start the solicitation with a phrasing something like, the story I'm making up in my head is, and then confirm what you understand to be true with the other party. And third, you and I need to offer more elaboration to those around us. This will help improve our receivers' stories they make up in their heads. They will still make up stories, of course, but at least they will match the context more closely if we help fill in the details. All right, so what do you think? Do we make up stories? Definitely. <laughs> my first thought for you guys is, have you ever had someone put a story on you? That was my question for you. And how, if you did it, how frustrating was that feeling? Heard it this morning, this person did it. They explained this whole history lesson on my life. Well, Taylor went through this when she was in high school and, and I just thought it was really funny to listen. I'm like, I don't know that I would say that or agree with that or actually put it <laughs> that way. Like, I don't think that's true. My example feeling this on me, it was way back in college. This friend of mine who he and I were friends since we were like little kids, it was dating this girl and she swore 
that he and I had been together before. She like convinced herself that he and I had dated or at least hooked up or something. He tried to explain to her that that was not true. It was not accurate, but she couldn't let it soak in so much so that she actually called me pleading with me to please tell her the truth that this happened. I don't think I handled it as well as I could have. I kind of giggled a little bit because I was like, no. (laughs) I think back to that story now and I like feeling for her and the stories she was telling herself to be or whatever insecurity, whatever was going on in that moment. It's like nothing you can do but just say story not true. Either you continue believing the thing you think is true, which is not, or step into what's real, which I would never, (laughs) it would never happen. In Brene Brown's book, Rising Strong, she talks about the types of stories that people make up, and they're based on the shame stories that they have built into their lives. Mm. So if she had a fear of belonging or a fear of not belonging or being abandoned or something like that, Mm. she would be more likely to make up a story like that and assign it to you. It really says quite a bit about the maker-upper of the story. There's a great term. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, I look back at it now, I think in my being early 20s, I was a little playful with it, but now I think like, wow, I feel bad. Well, the reason that you laugh though is it had no founding. It was so far from the truth. It's completely not what happened, but the creator of the story gets that shame story going and then they start assigning it out to people. Mm -hmm. You aren't being honest because it is true or you have a big secret or whatever. And it's based in that, which I find really interesting. What are you thinking, Taylor? You look like you're in thought. I was thinking the same thing because what this topic made me think of the episode of intention, because it's really what we believe. A lie I was telling myself made me believe the story of who I was interacting with. Mm-hmm. I put so much intention on something because it fills what I think in my own head. And so it really comes down to not necessarily the truth, but just what's between your ears, what you're really thinking about yourself or your relationship or the interaction. If you're really insecure about something, you'll fill in a ton of blanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And with intention, the the way to solve that was to ask more questions, right? Yeah. Yeah. We, we think we need less information. So therefore, by just assigning that we've decided we, we've created the story, we don't need any more information, then we don't ask, which then brings us to assuming, and we all know what that does. <laughs> what does it do, Merida? It makes an ass out of you and me. <laughs> yes, it does. I think it's so crazy to me that we approach situations like I know what's going on here. Mm-hmm. And it's exactly what Vygotsky says. You just for starters, you completely don't know what's going on here. And then you walk in and you do less. And then you think through the situation, make up a story, and then you get a shot of dopamine. Done. Hey, we are all drug addicts. I've learned that this episode. Just, <laughs> I know. It doesn't matter if we're right or wrong. It's like, we just need that high. Like, give it to me quick. Oh my God. It's, it's so funny. I know I, I were wired. Complete the cycle in me, but it doesn't mm-hmm. actually matter if I'm accurate. Oh, it's nuts, isn't it? <laughs> I wonder how many conversations, especially in this last year, are being had where some people are like, I know I'm right. I know I'm right. And they have these. Yeah. 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 If anybody likes to listen to TED Talks, you have to listen to it's Catherine Schultz and it's called On Being Wrong. Hmm. The highlight for me is she asks the question, What does it feel like to be wrong? And people answer and they say things like, oh, embarrassed, shamed, stupid. And she's like, no, that's after you find out you're wrong. But when you're wrong, what does it feel like? And it feels like being right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Oh. I, last night's dinner conversation, we were talking about, because I was thinking of your story 
at the beginning. Oh, the tennis? Yeah. Do you believe she did that to me? I love her. What a friend, by the way. Can we all comment? Everyone find you a friend like that friend. I was questioning, you know, with kids who have been told their whole life, like they're not going to do anything or they can't do something well. Or sometimes you see them rise up and like really in the face of adversity, just Mm -hmm. become amazing. Mm -hmm. And then other kids have support and encouragement and say, you can do this and someone believing in them. And they also do that. Mm -hmm. And so I was kind of wondering, do we notice one happening more than the other? I kind of wonder if someone who is not you would believe them and play even worse. Oh, yeah. That's a great point. Oh, that's a good. Oh, like, huh. like they think I can't play and I must suck. Yeah. And they know they probably saw me play last game and I didn't play that well. And Yeah. She took it as a challenge and saying, I'm. Yeah, that's true. I didn't think of that. Well, let me show you because you didn't believe it at all about yourself. Yeah. You didn't believe that you're a bad player. And you're like, oh, well, let me shove it in your face of how good I actually am. Well, that's what I was thinking. It didn't make me good, but I think I did play better for sure. But because you believe you're a good player, like that didn't change what you believe about yourself. But I would think for some people it would. Mm, yeah, I think so. Not only do we make up the stories, we make up how they affect us. Yeah. And the thing that I would tell you about that tennis partner If you met her, you'd say, there's no way this nice person did this to you. There's no possible way. But she knows that I'm deeply competitive. Mm, Yes. And she felt, as you heard in the story, that it was time to get me engaged in the match. (laughs) But I think I was even rude. I literally think when they wanted balls or they wanted to get water, I was like, sure. You know, navigating completely (laughs) out of this made up mindset or story that I had made up about them. So yet again, it goes into it's your internal voice what you believe that what you're saying taylor is like reframing you're saying some people will take that and say mm-hmm. i suck and play horribly mm-hmm. where yeah. other people re- reframe that talk talk here reframe that was like oh i will show you who i know i am and i'm a good player yeah well i'm not sure it was as thoughtful as you're portraying it <laughs> i think i was pissed if we have a close call and i accidentally maybe hit you with the ball i guess that's unfortunate there's like a protocol and you don't hit people it's that gut thing it doesn't have to be that thought out but it's just something in your gut was like i will play harder i will come back harder at this where some people like taylor are saying they fall they crumble into that did this make you nervous about how many times in your life you've been manipulated and you didn't realize it (laughs) oh girl oh we probably have all have been no i don't think it's probably frequent but it is interesting What it goes to show is not so much that this friend was doing that to get me engaged. She knew about me being competitive, and she also knew about humans making up stories. So she's pretty smart to know that. Now, I'm not recommending anyone do this to a friend. But now I'm wondering who has done this to me. This is what I'm wondering. (laughs) Wink, wink. (laughs) (laughs) The fact that I went so quickly to so much elaboration in my mind, not in reality, was very interesting to me about myself. Oh, I love that. Let's touch on that because you all you got was, oh, those are the girls that said you can't play. Mm-hmm. That I'm no good at tennis in the bathroom. I'm trying to imagine if I'm you thinking like, what could they have been saying about me? Why would they be talking about me? Who else heard them talking about me? They don't even know me. What did they see me do that I wasn't playing well? Who they didn't even, they didn't even know me. You know, like I'd get yeah. into that whole... Oh, yeah. And so then I filled in the rest, though. Didn't ask a single question. Didn't ask them anything about them, where they play, what they do. Did we know each other from a previous match? Nothing. If I had asked them a single question, they might have even been nice. (laughs) 
and blown up my story in my head really quickly. Yeah. Because you have an, an idea, you get certain, but then you could get new data that blows up the certainty. And that's the word I really love. I love the idea of certainty being the problem. Mm, the feeling of knowing, mm -hmm. you said, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the feeling of knowing. Really quick, I don't mean to, to go back to this, the TED talk, but what I like about what Catherine Schultz does is she talks about when you feel that you are right about something. I mean, this year has brought up lots of things in that way. When you feel that you are right about a certain subject and you're talking with someone that has the same information that you do mm -hmm. and has developed a totally different understanding of something. Mm -hmm. And she says, your brain does three things with them. You either think they're not intelligent, so you try to talk to them about it and explain to them your point of view, the information that you have, why you believe a certain thing. Then if they don't come to your side of the table after that, you're like, well, well, they're just an idiot. Like now you're just, now I can't even deal with you because you've been presented the same information I have and you're still not believing what I believe, right? And then the third is if they've gotten that far, then there's some, it's like, a, it's like she jokes and says it's evil, right? But that they, they're presented with truth, but they still won't come over here, you know? Because you yeah. believe so much in the, the small amount of data you've collected to make you right or certain in yeah. that moment, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And sometimes I think neither party has much data. <laughs> Right. That's a disaster. Because that has to be because there can't be so many different diversity of thought, but everyone be right. And there's so many different opinions. So I just think no one is really right. Mm -hmm. What? What? I, How could I no think, one be right? I mean, on some things, but on others, I just well clarify though right from perception because perception is what I think Taylor's talking about not right and wrong saying there's multiple versions of the same thing that we see at the same time I try to recognize like well I'm listening to my experts and they're listening to their experts but we're coming up with a very that's where you say when you think about someone being wrong like we all have the same information I don't think we do though mm -hmm. I don't think we all have the same information because then then you would be an idiot if we had the same information and it's clear right or wrong. Mm -hmm. I think we insulate from some of it because some information we don't like. So we yeah. don't want to know it. For sure. So why is this a useful tool to say to yourself internally or out loud to your person, your relationship with the story I'm telling myself is X, Y, Z? Why is that a good tool to use? I think it's a good tool because it's a pathway toward elaborating what would otherwise be not elaborated. So it's a pathway to say, the story I'm making up is this, meaning I'm, I know I'm creating this story to explain what's going on here. And you can confirm that or not confirm that or add in information you believe I, I need. But if we say, I know what's going on here, or you're doing this, or I know you're always like this, as soon as we come in with that certainty, we jeopardize the openness that we have in the interaction. So the suggestion by Dr. Brown is let's come in with the story I'm making up in my head is, and then say a few things so that you come in more neutrally so you can get into the pathway where it can be elaborated. But if you never get into that pathway, you walk into a situation and tell people, I know what's going on here. 
And here's what's going on. Or you always do this to me. Or you always do that to me. People don't respond. There's no pathway. It's more like a series of closed doors suddenly happen as opposed to opening the doors, which I think that does. I like the phrases inside of it, making up and story because they don't have a level of certainty to them. It makes me feel like the person that's using that, you called it the abbreviated or the shortened speech, like a truncated or something, right? Mm-hmm. person that is using that shortened language, like the certainty, I know this because you always X, Y, Z, I've decided this, mm-hmm. is almost building defensiveness in the other person. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. The shortened speech plus defensiveness equals conflict. <laughs> yeah. I wrote down believes too much plus truncated speech equals story and dopamine. <laughs> So that's the formula for the drug addict. (laughs) And so what were our tools? We were going to ask for elaboration. Mm -hmm. I know we're going to offer more elaboration. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about that one that you just said about asking more information. I would tell you, after teaching for over 30 years in this field, it is still the thing we don't do. People ask me all the time, what's the number one communication skill out there? Oh, You know how duct tape, you can fix anything with duct tape? You can fix your car window. My dad has and does use duct tape to fix everything. Yeah, so you like fix your bicycle seat, your patio furniture. We had it on our car window. (laughs) Yeah. The question I get sometimes is what's the duct tape of communication? Okay, I like that question. What's the one thing that is like super flexible and can help us in a lot of situations? And it's the question. And the reason that it's that duct tape is because it assumes not knowing. To ask a question is to suggest to the other party that you don't have all the information, that there is possibly more to know and more to learn about, and it's just underused so much. And when I teach mediation, I always say to my mediators, you need to ask two more questions than is comfortable. Mm -hmm. Because I think people get a tiny bit uncomfortable when they have to ask questions Because it might look bad that you don't think I know or understand what you're saying. And people don't like to look bad, so they stay comfortable and then they don't ask the questions. So I train my mediators, as soon as you get that uncomfortable feeling, still ask two more questions. And we find that leads usually to very good sequences. I like that because that actually will unfreeze you. Mm -hmm. I have felt that like, oh my gosh, I'm not understanding this. This person's saying something I'm not following or in a training at work or with a teacher So I'll say one thing to try to engage, but if I don't get it, then I'm just like, oh, I'll just be quiet. Because you filled in a story in your head. Yeah. Yeah, you're not smart. Oh, they don't want to keep going and Mm -hmm. tell me more. They're annoyed by my questions. So we just kind of are Mm -hmm. quiet. Which then goes back to why is being wrong so horrible as long as you're open to learning when you get new information? Or not even wrong, but just not knowing. It's okay to learn and not be and not know everything. I had this happen in class today. There's a guy who asks a few more questions than the rest of the group. And today he apologized in front of the class for doing that. And I said to him, you're asking the things that everyone wants to know. And a bunch of them all nodded. Oh, I love that. And said, we actually do want to know. It's pretty quick and pretty natural to asking questions. And I don't think it's because he doesn't get it. I think he's just trying to learn. The thing that I'm thinking about in terms of this topic is how much this research really should propel us into studying people around us in situations far more than we are and collecting data. And that's through the question. 
And we've got to become way better at asking questions to figure out what people are thinking and feeling and doing. Are there tactics to asking good questions? So that's our goal in communication is to be good question askers. Well, I think it's the duct tape. It can fix a lot of things. Okay. But are there any specific tools that you offer in that of asking questions? I think in close relationships, you can ask a series of what questions and get pretty far. I know we want to ask why questions because we like to build theories, but here would be my guard. The problem with the why question is some of us ask why questions to fill in theories that we already have in our heads. And that doesn't really help us hear them better. It actually helps us hear them more poorly. Mm -hmm. So if I have a, a thought, you're doing something and I'm going to be left out of this and I'm fearful about that. It's like a shame story coming up for me. And then I ask you a bunch of why questions to support that theory that I've made up in my head. I'm still making it up. I'm just using questions to create my story, mm. not to actually find out what's going on. What tends to be better than why? Probably. Although I think why's can be used if you actually are trying to find out a why that's useful to the relationship. I think you just dubbed my trading comfort for growth moment to be cognizant of my what questions. Yeah, same. I'm wondering if I ask questions kind of in a manipulative way. I feel like I ask a lot of questions, but I wonder if it is to just fulfill what I already believe is happening or to be true or just to fill in a story I've made up. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. No, I, I like the idea of doing a challenge for the what questions because it will cause me when I'm listening to new information or just listening to someone to not think about what I'm already thinking. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. To not listen and go, oh, this is what I'm understanding already, but just receive the information, then pause, then ask. Mm -hmm. I think it'll slow me down. Per your point, you could say, why are you doing this? But it already sounds a little like- A little judgy. <laughs> it's related to something you're thinking, mm -hmm. as opposed to what are you thinking about that? Or what are your plans for this? Or what are you doing? Or what are you thinking right now? Because what are you thinking right now is pretty uh, pretty neutral. It's not yeah. suggesting mm -hmm. there's anything going on. Yeah, I like the neutrality of it too. It's almost like there's like a tone or like a judgmental tone behind like, well, why are you doing that the way yeah. that you're doing it? You know, because yeah. I already disagree with it. <laughs> I think there's a judgmental tone behind it because there is a judgmental tone behind it. Yeah. <laughs> it does sound like that. Hmm. So my TC4G, or as a couple of people have asked me recently, what does that stand for again? So trading comfort for growth. And we call it the TC4G challenge because each episode that is about a skill, we try to pick something out individually and talk about how we might apply this to our lives. When we talk about a TC4G challenge, we're thinking in that mindset, what can I do today, tomorrow, immediately to try to understand and, and apply this skill? And so for me, when I wrote down collect data, I kept underlining it because I think that backs off certainty. I had a cousin once tell me something very interesting. So he used to work in the restaurant field and he used to come in and do consulting and management kind of things, redesign restaurants, things like that. And I asked him one time, how do you become so successful? And he said, oh, I just do one thing. I walk in, I ignore the manager and I ignore anything going on in the front. And I go and wash dishes with the dishwasher for 45 minutes. Wow. And then I know everything because I can ask questions and I can see what's going on in the restaurant. I can see the food coming back, what people are eating, what they're not eating. 
and the dishwasher knows and watches everything. Wow. People don't fight in front of the customers. They go back by the dishwasher to do it. <laughs> and he said he would just collect data. And he said, I didn't really need to go and talk to the admin people at all. I would know everything pretty quickly. And he said the dishwasher usually needed help. Hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, a lot of people show up in suits and they clear a table or two and think they're like really stepping in. Oh my gosh, yeah. And the servers don't appear like that's actually helping. That's like kind of pretending to have a presence. And I found that to be a very interesting story. And he said, yeah, I just, I want to see what's actually going on. And that reminds me that idea of collect data, approach it like that. Mm. Yeah. Go to the inner workings and just watch and observe and ask the question, what's going on here? Hmm. When I am listening, I want to be like a dishwasher. I was a dishwasher for a short time at a restaurant yeah. and it is hard it's hard That's what he said. work. It's exhausting. You just get like the brunt of everything and people come yep. back and like throw dishes at you and they're like pissed off. I found that to be super interesting as an answer. How are you successful? And he said, just by collecting, basically collecting data. And he said the other thing that he didn't like was when people tell him what to think about these different restaurants he would go in. You know, the manager sometimes meets you at the front door and goes, we're having a great night. That's really interesting. I'm excited to see what that looks like in your interpersonal relationships, especially your family members who you've known your whole mm -hmm. life. I feel like we've stopped asking questions mm -hmm. because we assume we know them mm -hmm. and they've changed really over the point. years. Yeah, for sure. That's a really good point. I was thinking about that. The other suggestion that I was talking about earlier, that we can fill in more information, even if people don't ask us. Not that we're owing them an explanation, because I'm not saying that but to help them understand why we're in a hurry or why we're leaving right away or why we're frustrated with whatever. And if they're not asking the question, still filling in some of the information that you can clearly see is lacking. So you see them almost developing the wrong story in their heads, help them understand that so that they don't go off on this story tangent that's super far away from reality. Not that we can control other people, but probably the people we care about the most, we could help them get back on what's actually happening a little more, not the fantasy chain. And is that important? I have a friend who sort of stopped offering explanations to why they would do something and they found it pretty freeing. Yeah. But also on the receiving end, sometimes it was frustrating. I mean, I don't think it stopped people from filling in answers for them. Mm -hmm. Yes. As to why they did something. We'll talk about this more on boundaries, but I'm going to talk about it a little bit here. Okay. I agree that you don't owe anyone an explanation. Yeah. I agree that too many people feel like they have to justify why they think things, why they say no to things, whatever. I totally get that freeing part. Yeah. And I totally support it. Yeah. But I also am talking about something else, which is what I call charity in communication mm -hmm. that you might offer it just to help them understand mm -hmm. when your mom calls you up and says i want to take you to lunch but you have a big test you don't go no we're not going to lunch and i don't owe you an explanation <laughs> i don't owe her an explanation however i might want to be charitable with her because i care about the relationship mm -hmm. so i might say i can't go i have a test i'm studying for and i i can't make it because of that and i'm not giving you the explanation because i owe it to you I'm mm -hmm. giving it to you as a charity so you can go away feeling better and also know what's actually going on. Does that make sense, that distinction? Yeah, I would think that it would improve relationships being charitable in them. Mm -hmm. So I view it as that. And when I speak, especially with women in this area, because a lot of women feel they have to justify a lot of things that they want or don't want to the outside world, mm -hmm. 
I say, I totally agree with you 100%. You don't owe anyone an explanation. If you say no to something, you don't have to tell everyone why. But I would also say that you might strategically give some information to certain people who you want to have that relationship with, knowing that it will benefit their understanding. Because you think about mom, if I don't go to that lunch, What's her story she's making up in her head? Yeah, she doesn't want to spend time with me. Oh, she yep. has, she puts her friends above me. Yeah. All these other things happening. Yeah. 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 It's interesting because on one hand, you can't control that story. No, you can't. Not explaining is like, yeah, no, I don't know it. I, I can't control how you receive this. But I know that I care about this relationship enough to just take 10 or seconds or less more to let you know that I care. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I would distinguish, especially between those close relationships, like you just said, both of you. Yeah. The outside world, the stranger, I don't think you have to tell the things behind it. Yeah. But I do think sometimes we can offer that charity to help people get through the situation, having a greater understanding of the actual context. And you also know some people in your lives that get hurt more easily. And you might have someone you really care about that you know gets fragile in this certain zone sometimes. Mm -hmm. And that's where I'd say the charity might show up again, where you might say, I'm going to choose to be charitable because I know that this is as a fragile place for this person. Yeah. And so I'm going to use charity to help them feel better, not because I control the story they make up in their head. I don't, but I can help them go less off the rails. I think that'd be really helpful for a lot of relationships. Super helpful. As we think about the stories we make up in our heads, the warning is clear. We need to stop assuming and ask more questions. We need to collect data and give data to other people to help them understand. It's funny because collecting data is something we do naturally as children, according to Ian Leslie. He wrote the book called Getting Curious. Leslie says children are agents of their own learning. They don't just take in information. They don't just accept genetic instructions. Babies are in the curiosity business. Think about putting a baby down anywhere if you do that, a baby will start licking things, stroking things, picking things up, and putting them in this mouth. But you and I aren't kids anymore. We have to reinstate that curiosity. And as we bring the curiosity back, we will see the world with fresh eyes. Well, thank you for joining us today. Please remember to rate, share, and subscribe to our podcast. And thank you for listening to Asking for a Friend. Let us know what you thought of the episode. Our email is hello at afafpodcast.com. This show is for educational purposes only and is copyrighted. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. Thanks for listening to Asking for a Friend with Talk Talk.